and good conversation and laughter happened around the table. And after everybody went home, you sat down and you said, you know, I, I'm so blessed. I feel so blessed. I feel so happy. The word blessed really means happy at the deepest level. Uh, and usually when we think like that or um, say something like that, it's, it's usually because of, you know, temporary blessings. And, and we should be thankful and we should be happy because we are, in fact, blessed in so many ways. It's usually because, you know, we got a new job and we say, ah, oh, I feel so blessed. I'm so happy I got this job. Or, or maybe you had a new baby this past year and you say, I feel so blessed. I have this new baby, this new child that the Lord has given me. Or, you know, maybe you bought a new house and you say, ah, oh, I feel so happy. I feel so blessed, you know, and we should. We should. We are blessed in many ways. But we've been seeing from God's word, from the book of Revelation, actually, that uh, there are some blessings that God intends for us that are not temporary. They're not associated with circumstances. They're blessings that come directly from God. And we've noticed in the book of Revelation, which is the very last book of the Bible, which talks about the end of mankind and what's going to happen and how it's all going to wind down, the end of human history. And in the midst of all of that that's going to happen, there are seven passages, all of which start with the word blessed, all of which God is saying, I want to bless you in the midst of all that is coming. Uh, there are seven special blessings that God intends for his people to experience, and God is out to bless us or to give us a level of happiness uh, that goes way beyond our natural or our temporary life. It's a level of joy or happiness that's soul-satisfying that satisfies our soul, and it comes directly from God, and uh, that it's deeper than anything we experience, and uh, it's wrapped up in God's words, God's words. You might remember when we um, studied Peter in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and, and verse 23, Peter talks to us and, and he says, you know, having purified your souls uh, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, uh, the love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seeds, but imperishable seeds. And then he says this, through the living and abiding word of God. The words of God are like seeds. They have life inside them. And when the words of God get planted in the heart of people, they spring to life. And that life bears fruit. And it changes us, and it blesses us. And so seven different times over the course of the book of Revelation, we find this word, blessed are those who receive this gift, and blessed are those who receive that gift, and, and so on. And these uh, seeds of God's word uh, have eternal life in them. And uh, when they spring to life, it gives us this blessedness or this happiness or this satisfaction deep down inside of our souls. And so there's seven of these in the, in the last book of the Bible, seven statements which speak to this deeper uh, satisfaction that God wants. These are like, I think of these as seven gifts that God has chosen for us who, who know him and who love him. Uh, you know, you probably just got done choosing gifts for people. And if you take the time to do it, you try to think, you know, what would be a special gift? What would this person really enjoy? And what would be meaningful to them? And so these are like the seven gifts that God has chosen for us to receive uh, directly from him. Seven gifts from God that I believe we should all take to ourselves before we die. Seven gifts from God. And so this morning we come to the sixth of these seven gifts. 
and uh, in the very last book of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, and um, and it comes to us on the heels of a description about what our future is going to be like. You know, if you read the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation that talk about what the restored, you know, new heaven, new earth is going to be like, uh, it's really a fabulous, stupendous description of how we're going to live and where we're going to live in the future. And so in chapter 21 of Revelation and verse 4, for example, we read that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, and uh, as you go on to read this description, you realize that it's going to be a restored earth, that the, the curses that were imposed <clears throat> way back in Genesis because of sin are going to be lifted. And the earth is going to be uh, like it was intended when it was first created. And not only that, but then it goes on to describe here in chapter 21 uh, a new city that's going to be the home of the bride or the church of Jesus Christ. It's called the heavenly Jerusalem. It's, uh, you know, when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, this is the place that he's been preparing. And there's somewhat of a description of this in, in chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel uh, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne and the lamb uh, through the middle of the street. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit yielding and healing the nations and so on and so forth. And so there's the description of this heavenly city. And uh, you notice that the river of life is there. It's the river of eternal life. And you might remember, um, you know, way back in the um, beginning in Genesis, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. And one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life. And once our original parents took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God banned them from ever being able to partake of the tree of life, the tree of eternal life. And so people have been banned from living like this on the earth for eternity, if they had taken from the tree of life. But here in the book of Revelation, the tree of life reappears. And uh, the people who are there begin to eat from it and live forever. It's the symbol of eternal life, the tree of life, and so on and so forth. And so there's this great you know, description um, of, of, of what life is going to be like. And uh, here in Revelation, um, this, the curses are lifted, the tree of life is back, and, and so on and so forth. And it's on the heels of that, that in verse 6 of the last chapter of the Bible, the angel says to John, these words, these words are trustworthy and true. These words are not blowing smoke. These words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of God. You can bank your life on these words. They are the very words of God, and they have within them like seeds the very life of God. These words are trustworthy, and they're true. Trustworthy and true. And then Jesus breaks into this conversation He says, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angels to show his servants what must soon take place. And then Jesus breaks in, and he says this, and behold, I am coming soon. And then here's our phrase, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed, happy, soul-satisfied is the person who not only reads this book, like we started out in the very beginning of Genesis, but is the, of Revelation, but is the person who keeps these words, the words of the prophecy of this book. Soul satisfied is that person. And then uh, John goes on and he says this in verse 8. He says, I, John, am the one who heard 
and saw these things. Remember, Revelation is the only book of the Bible Jesus wrote. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. And he did it not just with words, but he sort of showed John in, in dramatic form what's going to happen in the future. And then John wrote it down for us. It's a special kind of writing called apocalyptic. So he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, don't do that. Get up, you know. I'm just a fellow servant like you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Don't worship anybody but God. You know, get up. And he said to me, verse 10, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon. And so, in the midst of this um, sixth promise for blessedness, um, we see here that the prophetic visions of John have ceased. John comes back into the present here in these words in, in, from 8 and following. And these prophetic visions of what John saw, which most of Revelation is John writing down the things he saw over and over again. And then I saw this, and then I saw that, and he writes it down for us in order that we might have it. These words are trustworthy and true. And uh, I think of this as John now coming back into the present with the angel. And, uh, you know, if there was ever anybody who wanted to go back to the future, it would be John, right? Back to the future. Uh, these words are trustworthy and true. Let me make a couple of observations here. First of all, you'll notice in verse 10 um, that the angel said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. The time is near. Uh, the word for time in the Greek is not the ordinary word that you would think of. It's not the word that would use, we would use to mark off you know, hours and days and weeks and years. That would be the, the word um, kornos, which we get our word chronology from that, one thing after another and so on and so forth. But instead, the word here is karios, and uh, what it means is um, the proper time or the, the, the proper season. Um, it means the opportune time. In other words, now is the time for the prophetic truth to be unsealed. Now is the time or the season for people to be made aware of what's going to happen in the future. And it's really very interesting because if you take your Bible and you go all the way back to Daniel in the Old Testament, probably about 600 years before Jesus was even born, 600 years before Christmas, Daniel wrote about the same events of the end times. But in Daniel's day, God told Daniel to write these things down, but then seal them up. Don't talk about them. Don't reveal them because the time is far out. When we get to Revelation, God is saying, oh, now's the time. Since Christ has come, now's the time for people to understand these things and to know what's coming and to be aware. This is the season. This is the time. And it's really kind of interesting when you go back. Let me just read a couple of verses back in Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, which in the Bibles in the seats there is on page 746. In Daniel chapter 8, um, <clears throat> let me read these verses. Gabriel, um, make this man understand the vision. And so 
So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. Daniel's talking. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. God is revealing to Daniel, 600 years before Jesus, the same events that are talked about in Revelation. This is a vision for the end, for the end, the, the culmination of human history. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And then he goes on, if you skip down to verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. See, in Daniel's day, the same events are prophesied, but they weren't to be known or understood way back then because they were for the end. And uh, if you go to chapter 12 in Daniel, again, the same kind of thing, the last chapter of Daniel. Second part of verse 1 says, There shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. It's the exact same words that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 when he speaks of these times. It'll be the worst time that the earth has ever seen, especially for the nation of Israel, even worse than World War II and the Holocaust and so on and so forth. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall be awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn to... Many to righteousness will be like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That's like a description of the same thing that Revelation talks about. Verse 9 says, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise will understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, exactly three and a half years. Uh, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days." Blessed is he who waits and arrives at three, uh, 1,335. After this period of time, there's a restoration. There's two restoration periods, one of 30 days, one of 45 days, and that's the difference in the numbers. But this is exactly what the Lord says, exactly what the New Testament reveals. The end time will be seven years long, and exactly in the middle of it, uh, three and a half years into it, will be this, what the Lord calls the abomination of desolation, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, it's fascinating to me that way back in Daniel's day, the same things are being prophesied, but the time isn't right for people to understand it. But now when we get to Revelation and we talk the same things, uh, now is the time for people to understand. And I say to myself, I wonder how many people really understand the book of Revelation. I wonder how many people even make the effort to understand what's going to happen in the future. And we're, of course, closer to it today than we've ever been before. And by the way, if you were to take the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus talks about this period of time and overlay them, they all say the same thing. And the mud starts to get clearer, you know, as, as you try to, as you put 
what Daniel has to say and what John reveals from Revelation and what the Lord says, you know they all say the same thing and they shed light on each other and all of a sudden you begin to, to get you know, somewhat of a clearer sense of what's in our future and what the Lord's talking about and what he wants us to know. But the point is, uh, now is the time for us to understand these things. Back in Daniel's day, it wasn't the time. Uh, but in Revelation, since Christ has come, the angel is saying it's now time, it's the season for people to know the prophetic truth about what's coming in the future. Another observation that I think is significant in this passage before we get to the, um, the main uh, section of being uh, blessed is that you'll notice four times in this passage, uh, the Bible says the Lord is coming soon. And uh, you'll notice in verse 6 that the angel says it. Uh, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Soon. And then you'll notice in verse 7 that Jesus says it. Behold, I'm coming soon. And then you'll notice in verse 12 uh, that the Lord says it again. Uh, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, and so on and so forth. And then all the way down in verse 20, the Lord says it again. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. The Lord says again, I'm coming soon. And so a lot of times we read that and we think, you know, um, well, it doesn't seem very soon. You know, it's been 2,000 plus years now, and uh, people have been waiting. It doesn't seem very soon. But the truth is nobody really knows the day or the hour except for Harold Camping. You remember Harold Camping? (laughs) Do you remember Harold Camping? Uh, Harold Camping died, by the way. There'll be no more predictions um, coming from Harold. But Harold said that, you know, the Lord was going to come in, I think, 1994, and then he said May of 2011, you know, and so on and so forth. But on December 15th, just a couple weeks ago, um, he died. So the word soon in this passage, four times repeated or speedily, Um, is, again, not in the sense of measuring, you know, weeks or months or years, uh, but in the context of the book of Revelation, when these things start happening, the Lord will be coming soon. In other words, this isn't going to drag out for hundreds of years. Uh, This lasts only seven years. There's seven final years. We learn from the book of Daniel about the seven uh, years of this period of time. And so the word soon means, you know, in the context of these events that Revelation describes, um, you can know that when these events start to happen, the Lord's coming will be very soon. You're not going to have to wait hundreds of years once these events start to unfold. And we learn from Daniel that it's, you know, a period of human history that will last just for seven years. And from Daniel and from Revelation and from the Lord, we learn that these seven years are divided exactly in half by a significant event that the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped as God in the world and, and so on and so forth. And the Lord will come at some time during the second half of this period of time. The Lord himself says that his coming will cut short the tribulation of this period of time. And if he didn't come and cut it short, there wouldn't be anybody of his left on the earth. But again, it's not a defined day, but sometime during the second half of that last period of time. And if you're here during that time, if, if, if it comes like in our lifetime, uh, Jesus is saying, I'll be coming soon. I think it's an encouragement for people to hold on and not to give in because the Bible also warns us, Paul tells us in Thessalonians, that lots of people will... Uh, what the theologians call apostatize. They will just, uh, they, they won't hold on to the word of the Lord. They'll just give in to this uh, world ruler 
take the mark of the beast, and so on and so forth, like we're told in Revelation. And so I think what Jesus is saying here four times is, guess what? You know, I'm coming soon. It'll be an encouragement to hang on during that period of time. Uh, the events in Revelation happen in rapid succession. It's not like this is uh, stretched out over thousands of years. Uh, Jesus is giving us objective truth here. And uh, you notice that, again, this whole section starts out in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. This isn't something you can play loose with, the words of God. Uh, these words are trustworthy and true. And uh, the third observation about this particular passage here is that Jesus, who is the, the living word of God, always uh, gives uh, tremendous credence to the written word of God. You remember Jesus, uh, John's gospel, when John begins to write, he says, you know, in the beginning, way before time, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. God and his word are one and the same. And the word is what became flesh in the person of Jesus. The word of God. Uh, like seeds, pregnant with life when they find their way into our hearts. And so the written word is very significant to Jesus. And Jesus always submitted himself to the written word of God. And he bonded himself uh, to his father through obedience to the word, to the written word of God. Jesus wasn't willing for one little punctuation mark to be ignored. And one little jot or tittle, you know, uh, couldn't be ignored because it was the very word of God. And those words had life in them. Uh, Psalm 138 says, you know, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. You have exalted above everything else your name. There's only one name given among men whereby we might be reconciled to God. Your name and your word. You can't mess with God's word. You can't play loose with God's word. His words have the very essence of eternal life in them. And so Jesus is very careful. And so when you get all the way down to the end of Revelation, verse 18 and 19, in the very last chapter of the Bible... Look what John says, I warn everybody who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anybody adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anybody takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. In other words, you can't play loosely with God's word. They have the very seeds of eternal life in the words. And you need to take them seriously. And so... Um, when we know this, and we come back to verse 7, and the Lord says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words. Blessed, happy, soul-satisfied is the person who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. How significant is it that we take this promise of blessedness, this extreme level of happiness, and realize that it comes to the person who puts the word of God above everything else. Again, you might remember in um, 2 Peter, uh, Peter again talks to us about the value of God's word. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, Peter says this. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. Do you remember? Peter's talking about this one time when Jesus you know, was transfigured and God lifted the veil of his humanity and allowed his glory to shine. And there were three guys there, Peter, James, and John, who saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It was their own personal experience. They heard the voice. They saw the glory of God. But look what Peter says. And we have something more sure than personal experience. We have something more sure than our own personal experience. And look what he says. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you have something in your life that's more sure than your own personal experience? Most people do life by their own personal experiences. Most people have this or that, and that becomes their truth. We have something more sure than our own personal experience. Peter says, I had this great experience. I heard the voice of God. I saw the glory of God. But I've got something even more sure than my own personal experience, and it's the prophetic words of God given to us, which you and I hold in our hands even this morning. Blessed is the person, you know, who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Um, what does it mean to keep something? It's the opposite of to let it go, right? What does it mean to keep the words of this book? Well, it would be the opposite of letting it go or ignoring it. It would be holding on to it. It would be not letting it get out of your grasp. After, um, after my dad's uh, memorial service down in Florida, my sisters and I went back uh, to the house and our spouses. And uh, my stepmother, my mom died a long time ago and my dad remarried, but my stepmother said, is there anything of your father's you would like to keep? Is there anything of your father's you would like to keep? And so my sisters and I kind of rummaged through the house and through his stuff, you know, and each of us took something that we wanted to keep. And we want to hold on to it because it serves as a reminder of something special to us about our dad. And so um, what does it mean to keep God's word? Well, it's very interesting uh, because what Jesus wants you to keep of his while he's away until we're reunited is his word. Blessed is the person who keeps a hold of that word. And, you know, if you have your Bible, Revelation 19 and um, verse 10, you remember what the Bible says? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you are going to hold on to the testimony of Jesus, if you're going to keep his word, you have to embrace prophecy. Because a lot of what Jesus said is about the future. A lot of the testimony of Jesus, a lot of the truth that Jesus revealed to us is about what's going to happen in the future. And he's saying, trust me, 
Because when you embrace that, it has a radical effect on how you live today. Jesus knew himself what was coming in the future. And as a result, it conditioned how he lived. And when you keep the words of God, when you keep the testimony of Jesus, you have to understand it includes the spirit of prophecy, of the things that are coming in the future. What does it mean to keep the word of God? It means to embrace the testimony of Jesus, to embrace prophetic truth, to keep the testimony of Jesus is to allow these words to get into your heart, which then influences how you live. You know, we always act on how we really believe. We always act on what we really believe. We always act, we always make choices on the basis of what we really believe. And if we believe God and God is first in our life, we will make choices in accordance with the words that God has planted in our hearts. And so to keep the words of Jesus is to treasure Jesus. And, you know, don't be fooled because a lot of times people, you know, uh, play loosely with the word of God. And uh, a lot of times it's possible for people to deceive themselves into thinking that they believe the words of God when really they're just kind of playing with the words of God. And I'm always uh, taken aback by what James says in James chapter 2 when he says, you know, even the devil knows the truth about God. Even the devil knows who Jesus is. I mean, the devil knows the truth about Jesus. He, he knows that he's the son of God. He knows that he can perform miracles. He comes to him in the desert with temptations. And uh, when the devil puts this stuff before Jesus, what he's really doing is saying, let go of the word of God and listen to me. Let go of the word of God. And what does Jesus do to each one of those four times? Jesus just does what? Quotes scripture right back to the devil. Don't let go of the word of God, no matter what the temptation is, no matter what the promises are, no matter what the threats are. The blessed, happy is the person who holds on, who, who keeps the words of God. Uh, James chapter 2 and uh, verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What does it mean to keep the words of God? It's more than just knowing them. It's allowing them to get planted into your heart. And it's allowing your life to be controlled by them. You know, the first Adam, if we go all the way back to Genesis and say, what went wrong? What went wrong with the human race that revelation has to happen? What went wrong is that the first Adam was tempted to let go of the words of God. God came to him and said, look, you know, the whole creation is yours. Have at it. Enjoy. Be fruitful and multiply and have a great life. There's just one thing. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right and wrong. It's my department. I'll tell you what's right and wrong. Trust me. And of course, the devil comes and says, you know, you can be like God. You can be your own God. You can decide right and wrong for yourself. And we still have that going on today. Any day you can turn on the news and see people trying to decide what's right and wrong for themselves. What went wrong? Well, our first Adam didn't keep the word of God. He didn't hold on to it, he didn't live by it, he didn't entrust his heart to the word of God. And the second Adam, Jesus, who came, held on, kept the word of God. And so what Jesus comes to us and says in the sixth promise of blessing is, blessed, happy is the person who keeps the word of God and doesn't let it go. Jesus told a story 
Um, in Matthew chapter 13, don't you love Jesus' stories? I mean, they always make the truth come clear so simple. Well, Jesus told a story in Matthew 13 about uh, what it means to keep the word of God. And uh, Jesus was on the beach on the Sea of Galilee, and there were so many people that he got into a boat, and he sat down, pushed out into the water a little bit. And uh, from, from that uh, vantage point, he told this story. It's a story that I think most of you are familiar with. It's a story about a farmer. And it's about a farmer who goes out and sows seeds. And uh, remember now, the word of God, uh, Jesus said, you know, the seeds are the word of God, and the seeds have life in them. The words of God have eternal life inside the seed. And so this farmer goes out and he's sowing seed, but the seed falls on four different kinds of ground. You remember? Uh, first of all, it falls on the path, and the path is hard ground. It's been beaten down, and the seed can't, you know, uh, get into the ground. And so the birds come, and they just eat the seed, and it goes no place. And then the second kind of seed, you remember, falls on rocky ground. And I don't know, I have shale in my yard, and there's just a very thin layer of uh, soil on the top of it. Nothing really grows there, and stuff that does grow when the sun comes out, it just shrivels up because the roots can't get down because it's just rock underneath it. And Jesus said the, the second uh, round of seeds falls on rocky ground, and it kind of springs to life, but as soon as the sun comes out, it just dries up, and it doesn't ever grow. And then the third uh, uh, kind of ground that the seed falls on is the thorny uh, ground, and there's weeds and thorns and and the seeds uh, germinate, and they start to go, but the thorns just choke them out, and the seed never uh, matures. And then finally, uh, Jesus said, some seed falls on the good ground, and uh, when it falls on the good ground, it always produces fruit. Sometimes a hundredfold, sometimes 60, sometimes 30, Jesus said. And so if you think of a grain of wheat, you know, just a little tiny grain of wheat, and it falls on good ground, and then the wheat grows, and, and on the top of the wheat, you have this pod, and it's got, you know, a hundred more seeds in it, you know, and Jesus says, ah, oh, that's the good ground. And then, of course, um, Jesus explains to the disciples what he's really talking about. That's the farmer and it's the way of life in, in Jesus' day. But then he says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 13, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anybody hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. So the first kind of person, we're talking about the word of God. We're talking about, you know, a group of people like we're all here this morning, and the word of God goes out, and, and maybe you're the person that Jesus is talking about. Sometimes the word of God just falls on a hard heart. Your heart's been hardened. Something has happened perhaps in your past, and you've just hardened your heart towards God. And so you can hear the word of God, and you can say, oh, that was a wonderful sermon, and, you know, that was a great this, and, and I really enjoyed being here, and all that kind of stuff. But if the word of God never gets down into your heart, it doesn't do any good. The Satan just comes the minute you walk out the door, snatches it away, and it's gone. It doesn't make any difference in the person's life. Uh, that's not keeping the word of God. And maybe that's you. Maybe your heart got hard somewhere along, and you hear it, but you don't understand it. You don't get it. And you don't ask any questions about it. You don't go over it again. You don't buy a tape and listen to it ten times in order to get it. No, you're content to not get it. You don't really care. The heart has become hard. And so the word of God, the seed, can't get in there and germinate and begin to produce what it is intended for. The second uh, kind of person, Jesus says, uh, next couple of verses... Uh, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, well, this is the person who hears the word 
and immediately they receive it with joy, yet that person has no root in himself, endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the kind of person who hears the word of God and says, you know, this is too good to be true. This, you mean God will forgive me? You mean Jesus took my place and took the hit for my sin and that I can be clean and that I can go to heaven and I can know that when I die, I'll wake up in the presence. This is fabulous. I'm all excited about it. All right, count me in. I'm walking the aisle. Here I come, Billy Graham, you know, and I go down the aisle. I do my thing. And I begin to allow the word of God to take some root in my life, but because I'm on rocky ground and my roots don't go very deep, what happens is somebody comes along and challenges me. Somebody makes fun of me. Somebody mocks what I believe. And immediately I back down. Immediately I wimp out. Immediately I, I realize I can't defend what I say I believe. And immediately the word of God is gone. And it just dries up. It's on rocky ground. It's the kind of person who's all on the surface. And they're all excited on the surface. And they, you know, uh, get all hyped up about the truth and so forth. But it doesn't have roots. And, and, and they can't connect the dots between the gospel and the good news and the rest of my life. And so somebody comes along. Persecution, tribulation comes up. And, and, and immediately the word of God goes away. It can't do what God sent it out to do. That's the opposite of keeping the word of God. And then the third kind of soil, um, you know, the thorny soil, uh, verse uh, 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the person who hears the word. And I think there's a lot of people like this in Fairfield County. This is a person who hears the word, okay, but they've got two problems. Two problems. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of money choke out the word of God. This is a person who hears the word of God. They begin to understand it. They begin to start maybe even going to church and start getting in a Bible study. They want more of this and so on and so forth. But eventually what happens is the cares of life. Hey, I'm busy. I got a lot to do just to survive. And I'm just the cares of life. You know, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I got this and that. And, and, and somehow I just don't have time to, to nurture the word of God in my heart. I just don't have time for those devotions. I don't have time to spend in prayer. I don't have time to sit at the Lord's feet and let him speak to me. I'm just, I got the cares of life going on. And the deceitfulness of money. What I really think if I'm this person, is that money can do for me what only God can really do. What, I really, what really happens to this person is they begin to live in Fairfield County and they begin to think, you know what, more money equals blessedness or happiness or soul satisfaction. And so we become so committed to gaining more money, thinking that that's where we're ultimately going to find that kind of happiness and blessedness that the Lord is talking about, that eventually the word that actually has the, the life of happiness and blessedness in it gets choked out. And then finally, there's the good soil. And he says in verse 23, as for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. This is a person who hears the word of God, and especially when it comes to the book of Revelation, this is a person who hears the word of God and hears all the, how important it is to God, and this is the time for us. To, and they say, you know what? I, no matter what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to understand this. I don't care if it takes me a year of study. I'm going to, you know, 
get some books. I'm going to listen to some tapes. I'm going to find out, you know, I'm, I've got to understand this. This is the person who hears the word and says, I've got to make the connection. I've got to understand this. And then he indeed bears fruit, and it yields in one case a hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30, and so on and so forth. You can always tell if the word of God gets into your heart and has a chance to grow because it will bear fruit, two kinds of fruit. First of all, it will change you. You know, the Bible says that the fruit of God's word or God's presence, God's spirit in your life is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Those things will begin to show up in your life if the living word of God is planted in good soil in your heart. And that fruit will, will manifest itself. It can't help but manifest itself. It will change us. And then the second kind of fruit, not only will it change us, but then it will begin to multiply because you will take that word and you'll share it with the next person. And that word can go on. That person shares the next person. Sometimes a hundred times that, that truth of God and God's word being given to the next person, the next person, the next person. Sometimes it goes a hundred different people where it's able to bear fruit. Sometimes 60 people, sometimes 30. But the word of God is given to us and it's full of life. Blessed or happy are those who keep the words of God. You know, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. It's the truth. Heaven and earth. All the Christmas presents that you gave will pass away. Huh. Wow, that's a bad thought. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will never pass away. My word will never pass away. It has the seeds of eternal life. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are you a keeper of God's word? Blessed, happy, soul satisfied is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And allows the fruit of those words to manifest itself both in us and through us to the world around us. May God keep us blessed and happy and satisfied. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are so thankful for your word. I love that thought in the psalm that above everything else you have put your name and your word. If any of us have a problem thinking about what should be important to us in 2014... Perhaps this verse could clarify it in the psalm there that above everything else should be your name and your word. And that as we give ourselves, Father, to your name and to your word, that you are delighted to bless us with blessings that are beyond the scope of this life, that are not dependent on our circumstances, but that come to us wrapped up in your very words, the words of Scripture. Help us, Heavenly Father, to recognize that we are the ones who are the different kinds of soil. And that, Father, when we yield our hearts to you and offer ourselves to you from the core of our being, that you are delighted to plant your words which spring into life and give us the kind of blessedness that only you can give. May we be people, Father, who are thankful for the seven different gifts that you mention in the book of Revelation. May we be eternally grateful for the gifts you've chosen for each of us before we die in order that we might be truly blessed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.